You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt. And I'd like to begin our proceedings here today by calling out to the helping spirits to be with us. So I call out first to your ancestors and to mine. I call out to all of those who bring that which is good and true and beautiful into our lives. I call out to those who hold that legacy and give it to us through our interaction with them. I ask these ancestors to gather around us here today and to help us the living to understand what is ours to do in our own time and how do we do that how do we draw on the past how do we let go of the past that is the problem how do we accept the future and innovate that which must be different how do we hold true to the values that are necessary for this great web of life to continue to evolve to continue to interact and to continue in its ongoing interconnected support of life here on earth. How can we lean in as living and do what needs to be done for those who are coming? So we ask the spirits to help us with this in this day and may our proceedings here serve that purpose. And let us reach through these human ancestors deeper and older and longer into the dreaming and to call out to those ancestral helping spirits that were here before there were ever humans, to call out all of those other forms of life that are present here on the planet and reach out to these energies, for they are our elders of our elders. They are the truly ancient ones, and they are the ones who will be here long after we are. We call out to these helping spirits to join us in this day and to help us to understand what it means to embrace the great diversity of our time, not just the human diversity, but the true diversity of life, and to draw from that diversity new ways of being in the world that allow us to finally realize this deeper power in the many, many aspects of this beautiful dream we share called Life on Earth. So with all of these ancestors gathering around us here today and holding us well, let us take a nice deep breath and exhale. And draw ourselves in from wherever we might be into our heads. And take a moment with another breath and draw ourselves down into our hearts. And another nice deep breath and exhale and draw ourselves even deeper into our bellies. And from our bellies, let us take a moment and reach out to the energy of the earth and to give thanks for this day. And to give thanks and gratitude for the fact that you are alive. That you have an option as long as you are breathing to change anything before you. And so as we reach out to the earth, let us give great thanks for the generosity in that dreaming that we are able to change things, that we can learn and grow, that we can gain skills, we can let things go, and we can embrace new things, that we are able to teach old dogs new tricks. And for all of this generosity in the earth's dreaming, for the humans that are here, we give great thanks And let this gratitude in our hearts for the miracle of life itself pour out from our hearts. That gratitude continue to flow as we move down through all the layers of the earth. Reaching and diving and stretching and moving towards the very, very center of the earth. And let us take a moment and anchor ourselves firmly there. Stepping into our own responsibility to ground ourselves in this life. And let us settle into these deep energies that come 
from the energy of the earth, that which draws its strength from darkness, stillness, and solitude. Let us draw on this energy that is before life, before abundance, before the many things here on earth, but that energy which nourishes and sustains it all. Let us reach out to that energy and draw it up into our day and into ourselves, just as we would draw in and truly be refreshed by a fresh, cool, clear mountain spring of water on the hot, hot hike on a very tall, tall mountain from very long, long extended effort. For many of us feel that way at this time on the earth, that we are tired. We are uh, depleted. Many people are depleted. And it's time for us to sink deeper into the energy of the earth, to draw it up, and to learn from the earth, from her wisdom of manifestation, of how to be here in form in a good way, to surrender to our human forms, and to understand what do we need to do to replenish, renew, and restore with the energies available here from the earth. So as we set that commitment firmly before us, let us draw the energy of the earth up, settle into our body and into our place, and determine who are we, where do we stand, why do we stand here, what are our values, and to get our sense of home and family and belonging based on the things that truly move our heart, that have true value in our lives. And we reach out to the energy of the earth to teach us about the connection and the interconnection necessary to live in a good way, guided by those values. And let us reach deeper into this earth energy and the nature spirits all around us to help us understand connection and interconnection so that we can better understand all the aspects inside ourselves. that we come in better relationship with each other, better relationship with the other things in the physical world around us, with our environment, better relationship with the invisible world around us, and better relationship with those who are coming. So as we reach out to this possibility, this this knowing of our place in this great web of life, may we take a sense of right relationship from our place in the all that is. And with that sense of right relationship, let us move our conscious awareness from our belly to our heart, our heart to our mind, up and out the top of our head and into the layers of the sky above, reaching out through the atmosphere, out into the cosmos and all the way up to the highest power of the universe and to connect that energy by whatever name you call it, however you conceive of it, whatever way you understand it, to reach to these radiant energies above and to draw these energies down into yourself, into your day, into these proceedings and in this way to call in the true essence energy of blessing into your life, to call in the energy of protection, to call in that which inspires and innovates and illuminates the way for us. We call in the benevolence of our universe and we draw these energies into our head and breathing into our heart and breathing we draw the energy further down into our belly, from our belly down to the center of the earth and we connect these two energies above and below these two great legendary energies, ancient, ancient ones in this deep, deep relationship of cosmic love. And may that big love awaken the love in our own hearts and may our hearts open up that powerful crucible of change and transformation that lives there in the human heart and let you reach down, really reach into your guts and draw up the passion that you carry for why you are here, even if you don't yet know it in your head. And draw down from your head that crystal clarity that can discern reality around you and your own reality and figure out how do we do this. So we draw these energies into the heart and let them dance together in the heart in a fiery tango of creation to give birth to that third and most sacred thing that you carry in your heart, which is some deep knowing or memory sense of why you are here. And may you reach into that beautiful heart and find courage to do something in this day, large or small, to bring those gifts into the world. And for all the spirit help that each one of us has to do that, I give great thanks.
I want to take a moment here today. Nice deep breath and ask that what needs to be said be said, what needs to be heard be heard, and that these proceedings go forward in a way that is good for all living things. I want to give special thanks to the listeners who set up monthly donations many, many years ago, back 2011, 2012, and began to create the level of support that supports the show and keeps us on the air and has for a decade. Whether those donations are $3 a month or 30 this is what has uh, made Why Shamanism Now what it is and available for all of you free on the internet for anyone who can get online and download. And I also want to thank those new listeners who are setting up those monthly donations as uh, those who have been donating for many years now turn their resources to other things in the world. It is you all, you new listeners and supporters um, who are keeping the new live shows like today's show coming. And I also want to thank all of you who donate spontaneously. Any amount, large or small, whatever currency, whatever it is, we are deeply grateful for. It does literally keep the show on the air. They're obviously not all live every week at this point, um, but we are continuing to program live shows. So if you would like to support whyshamanismnow.com, you can go to the show site um, and click on the support button. We don't capture your email or have any other ulterior motives of any kind. We just invite you to go to the support page. You can donate any amount, large or small, and we are deeply grateful for everything that you offer, for it keeps this resource available to you and your fellow human beings out there in the world. So after a bit of a hiatus, um, today's show is live. It is another show asking the question, what is shamanic healing? with some case studies. And these are not going to be rigorous, intensive case studies, but case studies that are talking a little bit about how things have changed in the realm of shamanic healing over the last 30 years, as I see it, by showing some examples from different people's healing sessions. And um, I did forget to say that we are live today. So if you have questions about today's topic, you are welcome to call in at 512-772-1938, or you can Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site, or you can certainly email me anytime at christina at lastmaskcenter.org. So what is shamanic healing? So to talk about what is shamanic healing, we have to talk about um, what is shamanism. Okay, so how do we talk about this today in this age of social media vitriol and opinion uh, that is treated as factual information? How do we talk about this at a time when research has become whatever someone can Google and read in two minutes, utterly out of context? Forget about taking time to digest something that is complex or considerate consider what something truly means or what the ramifications of that information might be on reality. Western people tend to think that all valuable information can be accessed through the mind. While all the mystery schools and ancient spiritual practices and the history of our ancestors as well as even contemporary psychedelic use and psychedelic research tells us again and again and again that much of of the information that is most valuable to us to help us to guide our life in a good way can only be gained through experience. This message has been present for humanity from the beginning of humans, and yet we continue to need to be reminded of it day after day. So let me take an example here. Uh, to illustrate the concept I would like to bring forward today, talking about what is shamanic healing. You know, at a time when there are people, maybe not listening to the show, but people you might be talking to, who would say the simply the use of the word shamanism itself is appropriation. Now, as you know, if you've listened to the show, I actually believe appropriation is real, and there's a whole lot of people doing it. Granted, I don't believe the use of the word shaman small s, shaman or shamanism itself, um, is appropriation. 
So before everybody starts hammering away on their keyboards, uh, complaining, let me introduce to you Dr. John Chen, a PhD, pharmacological doctorate, doctor of oriental medicine, and licensed acupuncturist, and one of the founders, the co-founders of Evergreen Herbs. This is a company you could order herbs from today. So it's a contemporary company. His family, Dr. Chen's family, is filled with eight generations before him of herbalists in the tradition of Chinese medicine. So that is easily, depending on how you count the years of a generation, from 160 to 200 years of people doing really good work the deep, sincere practice of Chinese medicine and in particular working with Chinese herbs. So Dr. Chen himself is the ninth generation. And so he followed in this family tradition and became a doctorate of, received a doctorate of Chinese medicine from Beijing. And then he traveled to the United States to obtain a doctorate of pharmacology among these other doctorates that he has. He created Evergreen Herbs. And Evergreen Herbs has traditional Chinese uh, formulae in their herbal preparations. They also have non-traditional formula, which is a blend of Chinese herbs and uh, Chinese theory in the blending of the herbs, but with the addition of herbs uh, – Mostly they've been from North America, but as the formulae are evolving, different formulae are being created. Um, they are involving herbs potentially from other continents. Okay. So he also deals with the very, very contemporary issue with Chinese herbs, which is number one, you cannot just take a plant – that has certain properties when it's grown in, I don't know, the plains of China and just stick it in the plains of North America and expect the plant to have the same properties from a Chinese medicine perspective. The plant will grow most likely, most likely. But from a Chinese medicine perspective, it will potentially and usually does have different properties. Because the practice of Chinese medicine and Chinese herbs is looking at not just the physical properties of things, but also the energetic properties of things. Okay, and this is why I picked Chinese medicine as an example because it's a bit more like shamanism than uh, straight out nat um, naturopathic medicine, for example. Okay, so anyway, back to the two contemporary issues with Chinese herbs. So one would be you cannot just transplant plants to entirely different continents and expect them to behave the same. This is one issue we deal with in the contemporary world. The second issue that we deal with, particularly with Chinese herbs right now, is toxicity. The way in which uh, pesticides, but also just simply human pollution in the water, in the air, in the soil – is polluting uh, the environment in such a way that this toxicity gets incorporated into the plants. How could it not? It's getting incorporated into us as well. So we understand this and have sympathy for the plants, but it also means that taking a lot of tainted herbs is not wise. It's not healthy. And so these are two issues that Dr. Chen deals with because he is a contemporary practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine and – contemporary pharmacology. Okay. So even with all of this that he's working with, his passionate innovation that he is offering through Evergreen Herbs and his research, his continued research and evolution with herbs is creating herbal drug interaction disciplines that are designed to transition people off pharmaceuticals while healing the reason the person was on the pharmaceutical in the first place. And this is his passionate mission 
his soul's purpose, perhaps, an expression of his soul's purpose. And he is offering a very well-researched, very responsible, very um, deeply sincere way to help people of all cultures and all traditions uh, not only have access to herbs that are clean, but to have access to herbs that may treat allergies in North America similarly in philosophy but with somewhat different herbs as to the way those allergies would be treated in China. And also then dealing with the issues that we face, those of us who take pharmaceuticals, the issues that we face with pharmaceuticals. And how do we, for example, opiates. How do we make our way off these powerful chemical substances to get ourselves out of the problem of side effects like horrific addiction and still treat the actual reasons we ended up in that pharmacological situation in the first place? So this is a great gift to humanity, right? This is an act of cultural exchange. This interaction between uh, Chinese medicine, the philosophy behind Chinese medicine and Chinese herbalism and the herbs of the world and the philosophy and thinking behind um, pharmacology of the Western world. So it is an act of cultural exchange. It is not appropriation. It is innovation. And this innovation could not be happening without the cultural exchange at the heart of it. It is also an innovation that is dearly, dearly, dearly needed in our time. So I see Dr. Chen as an example of someone, one of the living, right, living here in present time, listening to those who have gone before him and that rich ancestry that he carries in Chinese medicine. And then being a person of his time and engaging in very real issues before him, that he cannot just mindlessly practice what his ancestors taught him in today's world. That would be unethical for the simple reason, for example, that we know these herbs are tainted with the pollution of our time. And he is discerning what is the same in our time. People still suffer from allergies, for example, and insomnia and anxiety, right? So what is the same? What is different? What is different in this time? And he draws on the traditions of these multiple cultures. Cultural exchange is at the heart of what he is doing. And he draws on these energies in a way to innovate contemporary cures for the living, this is an example of what I hope we are all trying to do as the living. He has already left the world a better place for the next generations, already. And he's a young man. He has years ahead of him to continue. But he's already left the world a better place. And he doesn't start Facebook arguments and internet ramps about all of the ridiculous claims for this herbal wonder product or that ancient Chinese kettleball workout. He doesn't have time. Nor does he call his non-traditional formulae ancient Chinese medicine just to make it sound more magical and powerful. He doesn't need to because he knows deeply from experience and education, his ancestors, and the need in front of him. He knows what is going on in the world, and he believes in what he is doing. He doesn't need to make it more magical and powerful. Thus, he can be discerning about what he is doing. He can be honest about what he is offering. If it's a traditional Chinese formula, it's a traditional Chinese formula. If it's an innovation, it's marketed as an innovative formula. 
He doesn't have to lie. He doesn't have to make it bigger than it needs to be. And he doesn't have to use the different cultural energies that he's working with inappropriately, thus leading to appropriation. So take a moment. Let Dr. Chan and the beauty of what he is doing in the world for all of us today sink in. Let the parallels I am hoping to draw sink in. So let me introduce now as we shift back to shamanism a couple really simple and sane concepts that seem to be missing largely in conversations about what is shamanism and what is shamanic healing. Okay. So, first off, could we just start using the names of the peoples that we have studied with? So, an example of this would be many years ago when the um, Society of Shamanic Practitioners began. It was in its first year, had its first conference. And I was teaching something I honestly can't even remember right now. But one of the things I was talking about uh, at the moment in this course was the distinction between learning shamanic practices within a tradition and what it means to honor and respect that tradition. What can you claim? What are you really not free to claim? And what, what is and isn't appropriation? And practicing shamanism that is not connected to a tradition. What does that mean to is it possible? Is it real? I mean, this is part of what we were exploring in this class that was part of this conference. And this woman raised her hand and she said, you know, I've been studying Peruvian shamanism for eight years. And it never once crossed my mind that I wasn't studying shamanism. I was studying Peruvian shamanism. And so this seems really obvious but it's not that especially coming from the Western world with our consumer consciousness, we just consume. It's like me with chocolate. I mean, it's scary, right? We just consume without thinking about what we're doing. And so here's someone who's been deeply investing time, energy, and resources in a particular course of study and experience and travel and very, I, I'm not criticizing anything about what she was doing other than the unconsciousness of the fact that she knew absolutely nothing about any other cultural expression of shamanism in the world. And thus, she couldn't really say that she understood or was practicing shamanism as a cultural humanity-shared gift that we all have here, that we all share is the fact that there were first shamans. They did come to their people. They did share the teachings, and people have learned these teachings and handed it on. And when those teachings are forgotten, certain people go through that same process again because spirit keeps showing up to remind us the answers to these questions. So the Peruvian people own Peruvian shamanism. It's theirs. I don't get to say a damn thing about it other than to respect it for what it is, and since I don't study Peruvian shamanism, I have no authority there. And the same thing for this woman, needing to recognize where did she have any authority relative to this? Because that's really the question we each need to ask to then understand, are we standing in an honest place of cultural exchange having been given the permission and the authority then to do what it is we're doing by the people who own the stuff or not. Okay, so this is the first idea is could we just use the name of what we're practicing to use the name of the peoples and then ask yourself honestly, are you actually practicing what these people are practicing? Because probably you're not. And so we need to look at that. And investigate that and not panic like I was saying, not give it a more magical name because you're afraid nobody will want it. Nobody will come to you. You won't be able to do this work in the world. I encourage you to look at that and explore that. 
So the other idea, the, my second simple and what I consider a sane concept is introduce this idea of what I call small s shamanism. In other words, the sane capacity to look cross-culturally around the globe and recognize while different cultures own their forms and their ways, people are doing many of the same things. They're eating, they're talking, they're practicing shamanism, they're making music, they're making art, that this is what humans do. And so no one group of humans owns small s shamanism. That you you see shamanic healing is a thing. It is clearly defined. And people are still doing this precisely as their ancestors did. It it, it is not open for um, redefinition. Shamanic healing, whether it's a capital S, those who originated the, the use of the word shaman, or those of us who have no word for it, but we're still doing the thing, it's not an empty parking lot that you just get to park whatever product you can't sell in to make it seem more magical and interesting. If you're not doing this clearly defined way of offering healing that is shamanic healing, then you can't park in the parking lot. It's got a name on it, shamanic healer. You cannot park there if you are not doing it. It is clearly defined. You don't get to just use it to name whatever you can't figure out how to talk about. Okay, so. If you are, like Dr. Chen, doing this clearly defined type of healing, as he is doing this clearly defined herbal work, and Chinese medicine actually. So if you're doing this clearly defined type of healing outside of a specific tradition, then call it what it is. Just as he calls his formula non-traditional, or whatever the name he's given it, herbal ABX. It's not – doesn't have a Chinese name, right? Uh, balance heat for women who are experiencing hot flashes and menopause. See, these, these aren't traditional Chinese names. These are new names for formula that are not traditional. So think about this, people. This is important. So, so what is this clearly defined thing called shamanic healing? Okay, let's, we have to go to now large S, capital S, shamanism. The word shaman, S-H-A-M-A-N, comes from an oral tradition. Therefore, the exact origin of the word is not precise. It is not precisely known. But the best guess from people who have enough experience and education and authority right, to guess at this, the guess is that shaman comes from the peoples of northern Asia and is most closely related to Saman, S-A-M-A-N, of the Tungus-speaking hunters and reindeer herders from the Altai Mountains of Siberian Russia. Okay, so it's only these people that get to claim capital S shaman and capital S shamanism because they are the people who were being studied when the small s shaman, small s shamanism got culturally exchanged into the English and other European languages, French, German, right, so that they had a word to describe this particular set of practices. Okay, so we need to know this, that this doesn't mean that only Siberians are practicing small s shamanism, that they are only practicing Siberian shamanism. In other words, they are doing their practices as Peruvian shamans are practicing Peruvian shamanism. And we don't get to claim by saying we are practicing small s shamanism that we're doing what they're doing. That would be appropriation and we're not doing that. So we need to know this and we need to understand that these people – and they're who carry these original traditions that were being researched, right? They are the only ones with authority to say whether or not someone is practicing this large S origin of the word kind of shamanism. 
And that's okay. And you don't get to appropriate that. Okay, but I have an example for you. I have a dear friend, Christiana Harrell. Okay, so Christiana Harrell, for reasons that are very – it's a long and wonderful story and perhaps I should have her on the show sometime to tell it. But for reasons that were never her intent but became her intent, she ended up being called to study for many years with Tuvan shamans. So these are in a similar area of the world. So if traditional Tuvan shamans – now we're talking capital S – shamanism. If traditional Tuvan shamans want to make Christiana a literally card-carrying Tuvan shaman, in other words, accept her, train her, teach her, and initiate her, and certify her with a gold stamp on her forehead, a card-carrying Tuvan shaman, they have the authority to do that. And I have no authority to say otherwise. And once they've done that, Christiana isn't appropriating anything. And that means you all don't get to carry on about how that's appropriation by definition because she's a white woman and blah, blah, blah. Because you don't have that authority. Only the Tuvan shamanic peoples have that authority. And the relationship the the means by which christiana decides to talk about what she does has to do with christiana navigating her relationship with her teachers and with these people and and that level of detail on complexity and specificity is never part of the argument and the fact that we are wasting time having an argument about appropriation that isn't and not looking at the appropriation that is, is hurting us. Because in the meantime, we are not supporting the actual small s shamanic healing that is happening all over the world in a good way and is needed. There is no shortage of people that need help, need shamanic help, small s shamanic help. No shortage of people that need it. And we need to parse this conversation out in such a way that we stop wasting time arguing from ignorant positions and we actually begin to look at what does humanity need right now? Because we are deeply in need of healing our relationship with the invisible world, our relationship with the ancestors and their own unresolved issues. The incredible epidemic of soul loss that contemporary people carry not just in the western world now but we've certainly causing it all over the well we americans are certainly causing it all over the world okay so small s shamanism and shamanic healing so the thing that is frustrating for me that is always left out of these yelling matches about appropriation is the fact that shamanic healing is actually very clearly defined by the capital S shamanic people. Okay. Now, granted, as you look at it cross-culturally, there is variation, but not much. Okay. So we want to embody the understanding here as we continue to talk about this that shamanic healing involves journey trance states, which is the classic – I'm using the air quotes now – classic, capital S shamanism. Big drum, beating that drum, shaman is leaving and going on a journey into the invisible world, leaving ordinary reality and going off on a journey to find out what needs to happen and do it. Okay. And – if you think about that amazing set of pictures that went around the internet nah, I don't know, a couple years ago of all of these shamanic peoples actually of this region, these Altai Mountains, these people are deeply, passionately in trance, right? They are clearly in an embodiment state with their helping spirits as they are drumming and dancing around the fire in preparation to enter into, to launch into these big journey states, and so it's important for us to embrace the fact that shamanism, small s shamanism, involves 
journey states and embodiment states. And an actual indigenous practicing shaman is working with both of them to different degrees depending on what needs to be done. Okay. All right. So moving on. So long ago, there was a lovely man, Aki Holkratz, uh, who was considered an authority on the native peoples of this region of capital S shamanism, the Northern Hemisphere, and believes that the word, S-A-M-A-N, the origin, is related to another Tungus word, not just a master of fire, but another Tungus word that stands for a social functionary who with the help of guardian spirits, attains ecstasy, read trance, in order to create a rapport with the supernatural world on the behalf of his group member or group. Okay. So these individuals then, so now we're starting to really define without worrying about issues of Peruvian-flavored shamans or Zulu-flavored Sangoma or uh, anyway, you get my point here. These individuals are individuals who serve the community through controlled and practiced trance states. They are found in many cultures today and in the history of many cultures where you may not find a living tradition today. And each of these cultures has its word from its own language to denote the individual who, through these ecstatic trance states, enters this alternate state of consciousness. And returns with information or energies or whatever is needed from which the community or the individual can then benefit. And so if you're not noticing, I'm running through the definition of shamanic healing again and again. These three things are essential. But the point of this last thing I was making is one thing we could do to be less um, tone deaf around shamanism smallest shamanism is when we are speaking of the Zulu, we speak of Sangoma. When we're speaking of the Karo, we're speaking of the Paco. When we are speaking of the Amazon region, there are many, many names, but we're speaking of the Paye or something like that. Some One of the many words that they use. In other words, where the name or the word in that culture's language of that particular functionary who is actually doing the functions of shamanic healing is known to us, we could pay these people the respect of using that word. And alternately, pay these people who are holding on to their cultures against all impossible odds – Pay them respect of not claiming that name if we have not, for example, like Christiana, been given it by the people who own it. Okay, so far so good. Moving on. So the point is we need these functionaries in the Western world dearly. We need them of and from the Western world, because the Western world is a great source of illness in many ways. I, if you're listening to this radio show, I don't need to get up on that soapbox. It is not the indigenous world's responsibility to heal us or our illnesses. So if we argue that only indigenous people can be real shamans or Sangoma or Paye, then we've now just demanded that the indigenous world pick up the burden of our own soul illness. And that demand is at the very core of entitlement and privilege. So my sense of this whole argument about what is shamanic healing and who gets to do it is we double down now on really understanding what is the work that needs to be done and how do we responsibly do it? Just like Dr. Chen, realizing the herbs have to be clean. We can't just move them and plant them in a new environment. We have to study this. We have to work with it. We have to pay attention and ultimately we have to work together. So a shaman, small s shaman is a specific type of healer who uses a trance state or alternate state of consciousness 
same thing, frankly, to enter the invisible world. Once in the invisible world, this is number two. This defines shamanic healing, shaman and shamanic healing. Once in the invisible world, the shaman makes a change in the energy found there in a way that directly affects the needs, whatever the needs are here in the physical world. And furthermore, that the shaman learns what to do. In other words, gains that information in the invisible world through direct contact with, air quotes again, spirits. So in the vernacular, helping spirits. And these helping spirits are, um, frankly, coherent energy patterns found in the invisible world. But that doesn't sell well, doesn't make sense to people. They don't know how to deal with that because basically these spirits, frankly, show up in forms of animals, plants, mountains, ancestors, deities, elements, you know, these many forms we've discussed on the show many times. So helping spirits will take many forms or spirits will take many forms and function as helping spirits. But the point is... There is no shaman without the rela- their own personal direct relationship with their own helping spirits. So practically, what I'm saying is, do you want to do that ayahuasca ceremony with that person in downtown LA? Well, your first question of that person would be, who are your helping spirits and how is your relationship with them? And if they give you some bullshit answer about how they don't have any and it's all about the ayahuasca and yada, 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 uh uh-uh. Okay? This is my point. It isn't shamanism of any cultural, you know, capital S shamanism or small s shamanism without a working relationship with the helping spirits. And so this, again, is the piece people don't want to grapple with in the argument about what is shamanic healing, which is it's already defined, people. It's been defined by our ancestors, and it isn't anything else. So if your um, yoga doesn't accomplish those three things, it's not shamanic. If your tea doesn't accomplish those three things, it's not shamanic. And if you begin to blend other things into your healing that is originally shamanic, like Dr. Chen, please let people know honestly. I get a lot of people that come to me that say they've had shamanic healing with somebody else um, several times and I ask what happened and they tell me all these things which are nameable healing forms, which are perfectly lovely healing forms. But they're not shamanic because the person hasn't been honest. And so like Dr. Chen, let us not make our work seem more magical and special by calling it shamanic when it is not. Okay, so back to the supposedly advertised case study part of what this show was starting out to be. Okay, so what I really wanted to talk about today in this climate right now of really toxic arguments about appropriation is that shamanic healing is needed around the world in all the cultures. And we need real practitioners who really are practicing shamanic healing as it is defined, as it has always been defined. Because humans keep experiencing soul loss. Humans keep creating soul loss. Humans are living in much of the world these days. The do- let's say the dominant um, population groups, um, population intensity, are living in ways, choosing activities that we all actively know calls in the kind of energies that are invasive, that ultimately need some kind of extraction or depossession, like drug use, even even happy recreational drug use with no bad trips, no supposed addiction. It still can create an environment in which these energies come in to feed. And so my point is that we need to support the responsible use of shamanism. (laughs) We need to support the development 
of really good shamanic practitioners around the world in all cultures because this way of understanding how to approach healing is desperately needed right now. We're not going to figure this out without the help of spirit. And so instead of building up our deepening understanding of what it could be, what's happening right now is we're just getting angrier and angrier and angrier about telling people what they can't do. I mean, when you have a white presenting person in North America who believes they are supporting the North American indigenous people who would prefer to not be called shamans because they've got their own names for what they're doing, right? And they aren't all doing shamanic healing, so they don't want to be called a shaman. Okay. Anyway, they the, this, this white presenting person thinks they're supporting these indigenous people of North America by telling a black African person who is initiated in their own actual tradition that they can't call what they're doing shamanism when they're a initiated sangoma that what they're doing by coming to the united states to work with people is appropriation is so convoluted and so wrong and so missing the point of what raising our consciousness of how we are unintentionally appropriating things more respectful and how to learn from all of this to deepen our practice. Okay, because why? Because soul loss happens. Soul loss happens all the time in contemporary life. And the healthiest way to receive a soul part, to return a soul part, remains a shamanic journey. It is the most energy efficient, least traumatic for the person receiving their soul chart back, and most importantly, it is the most energy efficient and um, cost effective in terms of all resources, time, energy, emotional energy, um, energy spent to make it happen, to make that retrieval happen. And a normal soul retrieval for someone has who has a decent support system and is pretty ready to begin to really get serious about their healing could easily receive three or four soul parts back in a session and, and do that every six months for 18 months and then be ready to really start to engage their life as a true uh, – start thinking about engaging their life as a whole person who is a grown-up. And so that's – I was going to do some case studies about typical soul retrievals um, throughout the last 30 years with Western people. There's a similar parallel with extractions. What I wanted to – and removing energies, the energies of illnesses, um, the energies of – that we that have been diagnosed as mental illnesses um, and other – possessing spirits. Uh, back 30 years ago, the most common possessing spirit that I ran into was simply a ghost in a family house that a child who felt alone and neglected made friends with. And then later on in life, couldn't get it to go away. I mean, it's pretty benign in the beginning. But these days with the um, change in our in our Choices of how we spend the day, not just with substance abuse, but emotional abuse that we engage in angry dissertations constantly on social media, sadness and despair and anxiety. These emotional states call in energies. So it's getting much more complex to actually um, – okay. It's not getting more complex to practice shamanic healing. What shamanic healing people need is getting more complex, which was kind of the point I was trying to get to today, is the energy is sliding off the reality table in these, these uneducated arguments about appropriation without dealing with what is actually dangerous and true disrespectful appropriation. While in the meantime, the needs of contemporary people of all colors are getting more and more complex and frankly, desperate, although it's an inner desperation because people still are woefully undereducated 
about what a true shamanic illness presents as in the contemporary world and how to deal with it. So the case study that I wanted to share today, but I can't do respectfully in the next four minutes, is about a person, just to, just to illustrate the complexity of what is normal now, 30 years later, and why I personally feel we need it off our butts here and start to really understand what level of practitioner we need to be creating and why and how to do that in a respectful way. So this person is someone who is actually relatively skilled, many years of training, lots of previous soul retrievals. And yet this is what we come up with. So we come up with a past life where there are profound issues around power. And this is playing out in the current relationship that the person is in. So we work through that, clearing that past life, which involves soul loss. So we resolve the soul loss in the past life, which takes us to this life, where the soul loss in the past life has created this um, very polarizing split of two soul parts in the current life. And one of those soul parts in the current life is um, largely the trauma that they experienced is actually coming out of the unresolved energies of the ancestors of this woman. And so the woman's ancestors need to be addressed and a certain patterns in the unresolved energy of the ancestors need to be resolved and those patterns need to be made clear to her so she can clear her version of those patterns in her current life so that then she can reach out to this soul part and be able to integrate her while dealing with the dynamic of the two soul parts that are fairly polarized while trying to understand how do I integrate a soul part from a past life. How does that work? And all of that is only two-thirds of the session because all of this together set this woman up to be experiencing this incredible soul-sucking emptiness that is uh, that has grown in, in each life it couldn't be resolved because for the last 2,000 years, we've, the Western world has been pretty invested in spiritual and religious forms that are based in this lie of separation, that we are separate from God, that we are spiritually and physically separate, all, all of these manifestations of the lie of separation. So we have a profound level of soul loss that is tied in with deep cultural beliefs of her own, her parents in this life, and also the ancestors coming in on both sides, male, you know, grandmothers and grandfathers on both sides, because all of these people are coming out of the Western world, which is deeply, deeply entrenched right now in the lives separation. And so this, this big soul-sucking, soul-loss energy is absolutely critical to stop that, to plug that gaping hole through the integration with that soul part, which is challenged because that whole loss itself at that level is supported by the previous things we just talked about. So that's how complex it's getting because we're spending our time arguing calling things that are shamanic that aren't shamanic healing shamanic healing and having people that are pretty naive about this whole thing confused because we aren't being diligent about where we are appropriating where we are or are not doing shamanic healing and and really rising to the call of our time like Dr. Chen and not really worrying about making it look more marketable So I invite you all to consider these things deeply, to look at your own practice and where you are truly using an altered state to do either retrieval work or extraction work for the benefit of a person or community or the land. Consider 
that as shamanic healing and call it that. And where you are not doing that, consider no longer calling it shamanic healing. Call it what it is, like Dr. Chen. And in this way, begin to educate ourselves more deeply in the deep understanding that our the power of our practice, those of us that are in smallest shamanism land, comes from our relationship with spirit and our willingness to get dedicate ourselves, our life, our practices to that relationship. It doesn't come from claiming to be a Peruvian shaman when we're not or Zulu or whatever. Right? And we don't need to argue about those distinctions. There is clearly small s shamanism and small s shamans happening all over the world right now because the world needs them. And if we want to take responsibility for where we have been entitled and privileged, we need those shamans in that culture, like myself, to stand up and do the work. So, like I said, let's take it in deeply, take a nice deep breath, consider these things, and be like Dr. Chen. Call it what it is. Understand how to draw from cultural exchange with deep respect and do good work. And I give enormous gratitude to the helping spirits in their many forms that gather around us, the ancestral helping spirits in particular, that help us to do that good work to the earth below and the sky above and the heart that unites us all. I give great thanks. Thank you, everyone, for listening.